Thanks for making it to worship this morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church, and uh, we've had a good morning so far, um, strong morning. Thank you, um, worship team, for leading us uh, as you have, and leading us to worship. And our morning Sunday school hour was spent hearing from Germany and Costa Rica. Teams are all grateful to build on that. Um, so we're grateful to you guys for that. Hey, you, you have found us here this morning in uh, the first part of a new series, and when we come to that, it's always, to me at least, uh, an interesting and exciting time, because I get bored talking about one thing for too long, and, and sometimes I project that on you, and sometimes you are, sometimes you're not, but one way or the other, I'm ready to go in a new series this morning called Fearless, or Fearless, um, Caught in the Stare Down is our subtitle. So here's the thing, this is a series about a four-letter word called fear, one that we all live with and one that we always will live with. Fear is consistent consistent as the morning sun, as the rolling tide, as taxes will be due on April 15th. Fear always comes to us, whether we like it or not. Now, not all fear is made the same, right? There's some fear that is good and helpful, and some fear that moves you to wisdom, right? Like, in other words, when you drove here this morning, you did not just drive right through the stop sign or Maybe you did, all right. So if there was a traffic light, maybe you didn't just drive right through that. And there's a reason for that, because the fear of what will happen will keep you from doing something dumb like that. And so fear can create in us wisdom when we realize, ah, it would be a bad idea to take that risk. And so moms are always thinking that their little boys have, don't have a, uh, a, a right risk tolerance yet and are just don't have the frontal cortex developed as much, and they're willing to take more risks than generally moms allow or would prefer, right? And that's just kind of the way life works. That over time, once you, as a little boy, decide, I've had enough with the rug burns, I've had enough with the pinched fingers, I've had enough with the cuts and bruises, you begin to say, mm, I don't want to take those risks. And fear tends to drive some of our behavior. Sometimes fear can move us to wisdom and making wise choices. And that, that's good. That's good. But at the same time, and I think we all know this, fear can also lead us to making mediocre choices. Fear can lead us to move toward mediocrity and to step us back from the things that we could become if we were willing to step into things that are hard to do. And that's where, if we all were able to be honest and open, we would all say, none of us want that. No matter where you are this morning, we would all say, as people, none of us want to be there, even though sometimes we find ourselves there. Now, here's the other thing about fear, is that even when you conquer a particular fear, and you've experienced this as well, that same fear will come right back again the next time around. Fear is a funny thing. You knock it down, and kind of like um, an old weeble, which is a toy. Anyone remember a weeble, this odd-shaped oval egg thing with a heavy base, and you just hit the face of it, and it would just fall down and come up and fall down and come up and fall down and come up, and, and that was part of my childhood. I can see a couple of head nods and some people looking at me strange, but kind of like that where you kind of knock it down and it just comes right back up again, that sometimes you step into things and you think, yes, I finally beat it, I finally did that, I finally said something where I should have, I finally responded the right way, and you feel very good about that, and then oddly enough, a month later, six months later, a year later, or whatever, a week later, maybe even just five minutes later, you find yourself in the same situation, facing the same fear, and this time you step back. And it's strange, isn't it? This whole idea of fear, it can be very useful and can create wisdom in us, but can also be very paralyzing for us. And what I'd like to do with you for the five weeks that we're in this study called Fearless is not to actually make you fearless, meaning that you have no concept of fear or that you don't have a sensitivity or conscience toward fear. Rather, I want you to fear less. Just fear a little less than you did before. 
not that it'll be gone, because it's not healthy to live with no fear. In other words, there's an element of fear that creates wisdom. We are to fear God, the Bible tells us, as people who follow him. But I want you to, my hope for you is that you can fear just a little bit less, and that you can have faith or trust just a little bit more in a whole slew of areas. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study a, a, a character, a man in the Bible in the Old Testament. And if you've seen this image up here behind me for a little while, you've kind of pieced together, okay, we have an Old Testament guy, we have a lion. I mean, good grief, what else could it be? But we got a study of Daniel that we're in for five weeks. Daniel uh, is this amazing character in the Old Testament. And in truth, we have a swath of his life of 70 years of history of Daniel. And we essentially learn about Daniel when he's 15, and we learn about him until he's 85. That's a pretty good chunk of life to learn from, and a pretty good track record to see what we can learn from a guy like this. And I'll tell you, within that 70 years of history that we see about Daniel, we're going to see a lot of similar things that you and I will step into and sometimes be afraid to push into that Daniel has dealt with. So strangely enough, this morning, we're going to learn... Believe it or not, we're going to learn from a sophomore in high school. This is how old Daniel was at the time, 15 years old. 15 years old. Now, those of us who are older than 15, we need to get our minds around this. We are now going to be spending the next several minutes together learning from the wisdom of a 15-year-old. Just kind of get your mind ready for that, okay, because that's the truth. And so if you're in that category, I want you to know this is significant for you. If you're in that teenager range or a little older, a little younger... Listen, the Bible is not written for old people, all right? It's not written for people who, are, who, are, who have it all together or who have figured it all out. It, this is a story now of someone who, in this stage of his life, made such incredible choices that centuries later, people still name their children Daniel because of the integrity of the choices that someone who started when he was 15 made. These incredible, incredible choices. And so I want to kind of frame up this thing for you and kind of get you centered on who Daniel is. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew around you, uh, and that is our gift to you. If you, would, if you need a Bible, that's ours uh, to give to you. The book of Daniel is a little harder to find than some of the other books that we are in, so good luck with that. If you need a little bit of reference, you can either look in your table of contents at the beginning of the Bible, or you can find the Psalms, which is about dead center in your Bible, and then move over about seven or eight books. You might find Isaiah, you might find Jeremiah, you might find Lamentations, a little book in there, um, Ezekiel, and then you'll run into Daniel. Daniel's a shorter book, uh, 12 chapters long, but you'll, you'll find Daniel. And just kind of park it for a minute in chapter 1, and we'll get to there in just a second. All right, so Daniel chapter 1, we're going to get there. But what I want to do is I want to frame up for you where we're coming from um, and the history of what's going on, because if you don't understand the history, you're not going to understand... Um, the context in which Daniel as a 15-year-old is going to be functioning in. All right, so here's, here's the story. Um, let's take ourselves back. I'm going to try to be a historian for a minute to, to the year 605 BC. And there's a prince, and his name is Prince Nebuchadnezzar. Prince Nebuchadnezzar, the child of dad, the father's name, Nebuchadnezzar's father's name was Nabopolassar. Isn't that neat? Not in the top 10 baby names ever, all right? But Nabopolassar is Nebuchadnezzar's dad's name. King, Prince Nebuchadnezzar, functioning under the rule of his dad, King Nabopolassar of Babylon, 
decided we need to flex our muscles a little bit and show the world right now who's in charge. Because at the time, Assyria and Egypt had formed an alliance and they were essentially the world powers around 605 BC. In the ancient Near East, they were in charge. And Assyria and Egypt, because they were in charge, they had various what the Old Testament will call vassal states, V-A-S-S-A-L. These are little states or little uh, territories or used to be nations that would report to Assyria and Egypt. They would pay taxes to them, uh, and if they didn't, then they would get killed. So it's just pretty simple, all right? You either pay us or we're going to kill you, so what are you going to do? And so that's kind of the way it worked. They would allow those little vassal states to have some level of independence and some level of self-governance as long as they didn't do anything that challenged or threatened the powers that be. And as long as they paid homage and honor to the powers that be, then you guys keep doing your thing. You know that we're in charge. If you don't know we're in charge, we're going to kill you. So let's just remember who's in charge. Nabopolassar decides, I need to get my son in charge of my army, little Prince Nebuchadnezzar. And in 605 BC, they, World War I, I don't know what it is, pre-World War I, they fight with Assyria and Egypt. Prince Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon win. So now all of a sudden there's a major shift in world power and world dominance. Assyria and Egypt are no longer in charge, and now Babylon has risen to the top, and Babylon is in charge in 605 B.C. That same year, King Nabopolassar dies. And so little prince, Nebuchadnezzar, who led this charge and has great energy and strength and vigor, he rises to the level of king. When he takes over, when Babylon takes over the whole world, essentially at that time, the ancient Near East, there's a little uh, territory now uh, called Judah, a vassal state, part of what used to be the nation of Israel, separated from the southern part of Israel, now the northern part of Israel called Judah. They now become one of the vassal states of Babylon. And they have to report now to Babylon. And so King Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going to invade Judah because I can, and I'm the king. And so he comes in in 605 BC and invades Judah. This is what we call the first, um, there's three buses out of Judah over the next about 20 years. The first one is in 605 BC, another one is in 597, and one is in 586. There's three different times when people leave or are deported from Judah. The first one is in 605, so King Nebuchadnezzar comes, and there's a king in Judah, and his name is Jehoiakim. All right, isn't that neat? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is king in Judah, and he has a son, and this is a really neat thing. He decides to name his son Jehoiakim. Very creative, all right? He changes the M to an N. So King Jehoiakim is killed, and he's out of the picture. He's taken off uh, to Babylon, and he's, he's eliminated. And then Jehoiakim comes in, and he becomes king. He actually only becomes king for three months before uh, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and eliminates him as, as king and pulls him out um, into captivity as well. Ultimately, we have this story accounted for in the book of 2 Kings because um, what happened is there was, after Jehoiakim, there was another king of Judah who rose up. And after a couple years, the people uh, in Judah, the Jewish nationalists, and you can kind of imagine this, if we were a vassal state and we were owned, if you will, by somebody else that we didn't really want to be owned by, there'd be some of us within us who would rise up and say, this is not who we always were. There's history to us. This is not our future. This is not our identity. Come on, let's fight for this. And the Jewish nationalists were doing that. And so this new king in Judah is hearing that in his ear. And so he makes a treaty with the Egyptians who already were defeated by the Babylonians. And King Nebuchadnezzar hears about it. And as you can imagine, he gets 
angry. King Nebuchadnezzar lays siege on Jerusalem for two years. They sit outside the walls of Jerusalem, and for two years, every time you get up, if you're in Jerusalem, you look out and you see the army of Babylon right there. Their job is to cut off the food supply and cut off your supply and your connection to the world. They're going to starve you out of Jerusalem. And finally, you get to the point where that siege has worked. And I'm just going to read to you some of that history because it's amazing. And frankly, it's in the Bible and it's really unique. Second Kings uh, chapter 25, you don't need to turn there, but if you really want to, you can. Beginning of verse 1, so in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign... On the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army, and he encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. And the city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city became so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. So this is after two years, finally, people are done. We've got nothing left. And then the city wall was broken through. And the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city and they fled uh, toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. This is the king. And he was captured and he was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah where sentence was pronounced on him. Now I want you to understand the sentence because you need to understand what happens to this king. So they killed the king of Zedekiah, excuse me, they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Just kind of think about that for a minute. The sons of the king of Judah, they brought before him, bound him, killed his sons before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, the king's eyes, and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. So that the last thing that he would see would be the death of his sons. And then they poke out his eyes bind him up like a slave, take him off to Babylon. Just a reminder, we're in charge. We're God here. You're not. You used to have a God. His name was Yahweh. We took all of his stuff from your temple. Remember that? We're God. You're not. Later on, the end of this siege of the city, the Babylonians moved into the temple. They destroyed all the worship um, instruments. They broke up the bronze pillars. They broke everything down. And they took more people captive. Verse 18 of 20, chapter 25. The commander of the Babylonian guard took his prisoners, Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers of those still in the city. And he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and five royal advisors. And he also took the secretary, who was the chief officer in charge of conscripting the people to the land, and 60 of his men who were found in the city. A lot of people, a lot of important people. Then Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And there at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. All of them. Anyone who's connected in any way to leadership in Judah? Executed. You're gone. Except the king. We're just going to torture you instead after we kill your children. This is the context where we enter into the story of someone who is a sophomore in high school who's faced with a decision to go with or go against a command that has come down from the king who would do this to whoever crosses him. Amazing. Amazing. And let's read it in Daniel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We just read some of that background. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Let's pause it right there. A lot has happened in the first seven verses. What is happening now is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is going through an indoctrination period with these young men that he has taken from Judah. And he has them here for a variety of reasons in his court. But one of those is um, he wants the people back in Judah to know the people of your nobility, of your royal family, I own them now. Just a reminder, I own them. They're a constant reminder of his victory and his strength. Like, I have the best that this nation has to offer. And he trains them. He essentially takes them to college. <laughs> Some of you are going to school now, you're going to college, or you're about to head off there in a year or two. You get to choose where you want to go. These people don't. Daniel and his friends don't get to choose. They are indoctrinated into both the language and the learning of the Babylonians. So you have to learn the language... And then you have to learn the culture, the history, the economics, the foundations, the religion, the magical arts of the Babylonians. You don't really have a choice if you want to get up at, uh, on Monday morning at 7 o'clock for class or not. You don't really get to choose what your course load is going to be. You don't get to choose how you want to perform in these courses. You know that if you cross the king, <laughs> he will cross you and there's no more you. It just the story and just where you're at. Now, Daniel has no parents right now. You need to know that. He at least has no access to his parents. So you're 15 years old. Remember what it was like to be 15? Some of you are 15-ish right now, and you, you think you've got a pretty good handle on the world, and truthfully, you probably do for being 15. But with all respect, you're 15, all right? When I was 15... I thought I knew what I knew, and I didn't know what I know, but I'm telling you now. <laughs> anyone who's past 15, several years past, past 15, will look back and say, boy, when I was 15, man, oh, day did I have so much to learn. When you're 15, you're 15. We have, that, that's great. But come on, this is, a, this is a guy who's 15 years old. And think about this. He's 15, and he's taken from his parents, and he's put into, he's conscripted, he's signed on to a new school, university essentially, Babylonian School of Learning. And by the way, the, 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 uh, the president of this school, he's tortured previous kings of Judah. He's killed people before their eyes. He has no problem uh, at all with any issue of people who are, who are crossing me at all. And so what, what are you going to do uh, here, little Daniel at 15? And here's a very interesting thing that Daniel does. And verse 8 introduces us to the first um, really decision that Daniel has to make, and it's a significant one. And it's really at first also kind of odd in the exact issue that Daniel picks on at first. But Daniel, verse 8, but Daniel, 
And in the NIV it says resolved not to defile himself. Other texts might say um, have decided or, um, you know, um, vowed not to, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now this is interesting. I mean, Daniel, listen, of all the things that are going wrong in your life right now, you're really going to send the food back to the kitchen and ask him to serve you something else? I mean, seriously, Daniel, this, this is what you're going to fight about? Like, this is, this is what you're going to resolve? I mean, of all the things, Daniel, I mean, Daniel, look at what just happened to you. Your name was changed from Daniel, which means God is my judge, to Belteshazzar. I mean, come on, that's a big deal. Can you imagine your name being changed? You're no longer called whatever your name is. You're no longer called your name. You're called something else. And you, the meaning of your name and all that came with that, the heritage and history of your name is gone. And you're given a different name meant to honor a Babylonian God instead of the God of, of Jerusalem, the God of, of Israel, Yahweh, which is what your name was intended to be. And you don't say anything about that. In fact, you also have to learn you have to learn things that are so contrary to your moral and ethical fiber. I mean, think about that just for a minute. Daniel is 15. He was raised to think about Yahweh as God. He has the power. He has the strength. And now he's going through this curriculum where there is no doubt he is learning occultic practices and how the magicians work. He's learning the religious history of Babylon. He's learning all kinds of perversions, not only of the spiritual world, but of the moral and ethical world of how things get done. He's learning an economic base that is very different than what he's used to. He's learning a, a government that is very different than the theocracy that Israel was to set up. I mean, everything about what he's learning is just fundamentally different. And I just, we don't hear him pushing back on his name change, and we don't hear him pushing back on any of the things that he's learning, even though they would be offensive. All that we have record of in Daniel chapter 1 is that he decides, when you bring me the food and the wine that you bring me, I'm resolved not to eat it. Come on, Daniel. <laughs> what gives? Why? And here's the why. And this is so important for us. Here's the why. This is so critical for really what I think the main idea of this passage is this morning. Here's what Daniel knew. That there are some things that are so important to fight for that I better be sure that they are clearly biblical. And when they are biblical, I need to resolve myself to fight on those issues. See, Daniel's resolve was on a biblical issue of purity, a biblical issue of what he was allowed to eat as, a, as an orthodox, for lack of a better term, Jew, as someone who was still under the Abrahamic, the Mosaic covenant in particular, who had to follow certain dietary laws laid out in Leviticus, laid out in Deuteronomy. And so Daniel knew that this food that was coming to him, this food was not only against the Torah and the Bible, as we now call it today, not only was it specifically against what I'm allowed to eat, but also this food had been offered to the Babylonian gods before it arrived to me. And so King Nebuchadnezzar would dedicate essentially the best food that he had to his gods to bless it so that his body and those who ate it would also be blessed. And Daniel knew, if I eat this food that has been blessed by the king, that is beckoned the goodness of his gods, and if I prosper, it will be seen that somehow the Babylonian gods had a part in my prospering. And I am a man, a 15-year-old, a sophomore. I'm a sophomore of conviction. 
that I'm going to resolve that my life at 15, I'm willing to stand in the face of a king who will slaughter people at whim and say the future of my life is built on my God and not this king. So I'm going to resolve myself not to eat the food that comes to me. It is a biblical problem. It is a prohibition. I'm not allowed to do this, and I don't want these gods to get credit for what I do. An incredible decision by a 15-year-old who couldn't go to mom and dad and say, hey, mom, dad, what do you think? And maybe he was just naive enough. Maybe he had just enough edge on him as a 15-year-old. Maybe he didn't quite understand the implications of it, but something tells me you live in Babylon, you understand what's happening. And he makes the decision, I'm going to be resolved not to do this. Now, let's read what happens in verse 9. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Fair point. So then Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Now check it out. This is significant. Daniel not only had a conviction, but he then had a plan. He had a, a re- rejection, right, from the guy right over him who said, boy, this, if I do this, Daniel, you need to know, if things go badly for you, they go worse for me. I'm going to die. And Daniel immediately had a plan. This is how you can do this. And let me just suggest this to you. He's 15. He's 15 years old. He offers this plan. So, verse 14. He agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, which was three years, the chief official presented them to the great, powerful king Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, which was 70 years later. Amazing. Amazing story. As we read this and we see this, I want to highlight a couple of things. Daniel's story and his conviction highlights this issue right here. And this is, if I could summarize it briefly, this is what, as we're, we're kind of caught in the stare down, this is what I think sometimes we get caught in as people. Sometimes we get caught in the indecision of knowing what to fight for and what to let go. You ever been there? Sometimes we get caught in the indecision of knowing what is worth fighting for and what we need to let go. Daniel's story is one where his name was changed. That's a big deal. God is my judge. To Belteshazzar, honoring Bel, the god of Babylon. He doesn't push back on that. 
Why not, Daniel? That's a, that's a God-honoring issue, isn't it? We just don't see any record of that. I mean, the guy's learning a curriculum that he would never sign up for. He has to learn the language and the culture of the Babylonians who are <laughs> worshiping gods that call them to do all kinds of things that are just highly, highly offensive to the God of the Bible. We just don't see a pushback to that. Why not? And finally, we see a pushback to the law of eating and food because there is a clear violation. He cannot do this. He cannot eat. You ever feel stuck with trying to figure out what is worth fighting for and what is not? Ever feel indecisive about knowing how much do I give my energy to push back on this issue or push back on that issue? Daniel's there. He's 15 years old, but he's there. He's there. And so here's what I want to say. That as we're staring it down, the issue is this. How do we pick the right battles and then resolve to win them? So here's Daniel. Daniel is picking a battle, and he's picking the right battle, and then he's resolving to win it. By win it, I mean win in as much as he can control it. So the stare down is saying, okay, I'm going to resolve, I'm going to resolve that I'm going to win the right battles, and that assumes that I can pick the right battles to begin, that I can pick the right battles, number one, and then I will resolve to win those. By winning, again, I don't mean running over people, but I mean this, that in Daniel's, Daniel's win was, I'm going to win it by, in this moment of saying, when the food comes to me, I can't do this, I'm not going to do this. Let the consequences be what they may. I cannot do this. That becomes the win. If he's executed for that and he loses his life, he's still won. He's come humbly to the guy right over him and says, listen, I can't do this. Can we offer another option, another plan? And here we go. And he came respectfully with his plan, but he resolved to win in his mind and heart and his conscience what was right to do. So here's some things to say about that as we kind of push into that a little bit. Pick the right battles and resolve to win them. You guys know, we know, because we're smart people, we've been there before, that not every battle is worth it. Now, this is harder for us as adults to see, but we, even as adults, we know this and children know this. When you, if you were to walk back in the nursery here or the toddler nursery right now this morning, I can, I can guarantee you there have been some tiffs back there this morning, right? There have been some issues back there. There have been some kids who took someone else's ball or who, who kicked somebody else or who pushed on somebody, and there's just those little things because somebody took my car and somebody took my whatever. And you know as a parent or an adult back there watching them, it's just not worth fighting over. There's some things that aren't worth fighting over. And, and as kids, we grow up and we begin to learn, okay, that's not worth fighting over. And we just know the principle is true. It just becomes harder for us as adults to differentiate what is and what is not worth fighting for. But we know it in principle, at least, right? That not everything is worth fighting for. We, we know that. Now, here's a principle. Here's a principle that I think comes from this chapter in Daniel that I hope will help you as you think about how do I decide, it's the right question, how do I decide what is worth fighting for and what is not? That is a big question. How do I decide what hills to die on and what hills not to die on? Big question. And here's a principle that I think comes right from Daniel chapter 1. And that is this, is it personal or is it biblical? Is it personal or is it biblical? This question, while not answering everything, certainly, will help you frame up the feelings that you have will help you frame up the fight that you have in you. Will help you frame up, is this right for me to step into or not? Now, if we're honest, sometimes the personal feels biblical. 
Sometimes the personal feels of biblical proportion and feels like we just want that baby to be biblical. We just want that to be a biblical issue so we can fight on that issue. And I'm going to figure out a way to make that biblical so I can say that I can fight on this issue. And if we're honest, sometimes that's how we feel, if we're honest. I can tell you that's been the case for me. I think if we're all honest, if we look back in our history, that's been the way we all have been. Some of my greatest disappointments I, I would have put there, you know, times when Either you're, you're broken up with and you, didn't, you weren't the one to initiate the breakup and you just kind of feel devastated by that. Or you know, someone says some things about you that sully your reputation and you think, ah, come on, there's got to be a biblical issue here and, you just kinda, and I just kind of want to make it a biblical issue because I'm so personally offended by it that I'm so emotionally wrapped up in it that I want it to be biblical because I want to fight for it because I have anger and I have a sense of injustice and I want to fight for it. And here's Daniel. His name's changed, for goodness sakes. He's learning all kinds of perversions in school, for goodness sakes. A lot of offenses in his life, and the only thing that we have record of in Daniel 1 that he's fighting over is something that is just a clear violation of a biblical standard. You're not allowed to eat the food. You you just can't do it. And we can go to Leviticus. We can go to Deuteronomy and say, here's the issue. You can't eat the food. So what are you going to do? Is it personal or is it biblical? Tough question to ask and answer. Tough question. Then the third question is this. What is it, and it all goes together, what is it that I need to resolve to win? Okay, What is it that I need to resolve to win? What is it that, as I look at my life right now, I say, okay, uh, there are some things that I have wanted to win, that I wished I could have won, that in, in good weather I would say I would want to be known for this, but right now I'm not winning there. I want to be known as a man of integrity, but right now everybody knows, at least I know in my own life and heart, that I'm not even thinking pure thoughts during the week. I mean, I want to be a, a, a woman who, who is known for her grace and truth, but I know that I gossip about other people behind their backs, and I know that, and it's just the way that relationship works. And I, and I want to be a husband who at the end of his days is not just committed to my work, but has served my, my wife and my children well, because that's what I want, but I'm not really resolved to it. Yet, but I, I want it, but I'm not really resolved to it yet. I don't want to be a wife that no matter what happens in our family, I'm right there with my husband and supporting him and serving him and caring for him. And I'm kind of there in heart, and I would want to be there if you push me. Yeah, I'd want to be there. But am I resolved to it? And I want to be a student when I go to school, right? And I, and I get pushed into with all kinds of things, and people around me are, are saying things and looking at things and posting stuff on, on Instagram posting stuff on Facebook, and I'm just thinking, that's not me, but yeah, whatever, I just kind of want to make sure I get along with everybody. And, 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 but yet, I don't want to be known as that person. So I don't really want to do that, but I am not really resolved not to be that person. So the question is, what is it that I need to resolve to win? To take the step beyond simply, I want to, I wish I could, and I do whether I would, now to say, I need to resolve to win in this way. Now, Perhaps this sentence will help you, and this, this uh, I hope, will be of help to you. Think about this for a minute. If you could fill in the blanks on a sentence like this, what would they be for you? If I keep, fill in the blank, then I will fill in the blank. In other words, if I keep doing what I'm doing right now, then I will become the result of what I'm doing. If I keep waiting to break that habit, then I will come to the end of my life and regret the years I've wasted. If I keep spending the money the way I'm spending my money, then I will... Look back with loss on what I've missed with better giving investment opportunities. If I keep 
being disingenuous, being half-hearted in my commitment to my God, I'm going to, then I will, then I will grow old and look back on a mediocre life and wish I wouldn't have had it and wish I would have changed it when I did. Just create the if-then. If I keep, then I will. If I keep doing, if I keep thinking, if I keep waiting, then I will regret. Then I will wish I would have. Then I will wonder why I wasted. Then I will mm, have that mm, regret. For many of us, if, if, you're, if you're anything like me, here's how life kind of works. Um, in many ways, like an airplane on autopilot. And we just know, I'm not a pilot, I'm not the son of a pilot or anything like that, okay? But we just know that airplanes, big airplanes, are flown by computers, okay, at, at big picture level. Yes, people are there, but they're, they're flown by computers, okay? Here's what happens. Uh, plane people, airplane people will tell you, um, about two-thirds of the accidents that happen are, are, are happening because the crew is, is too locked into uh, the task of managing the computer or managing the system that they have, and they're not able to respond in a human way to the immediate need that happens. So, for example, if a plane on takeoff is seeing that there's another plane kind of on descent or their trajectory is putting them into the path of another oncoming plane, the default behavior of a pilot is to reprogram the computer. First thing to do is reprogram the computer and get me out of that, that, that flight path. Well, the problem is, as the instructors will tell pilots, the problem with this is that while you are reconfiguring the computer, the plane is still speeding in the wrong direction while you are trying to figure out how to reprogram the computer. And then the instructor will tell the pilots this. Remember, you're not a computer program. You are a pilot. Fly the plane. In other words, get it out of, out of autopilot right then. Change the habit right then. You've got to because you're speeding in the wrong direction and the longer you take to reprogram and think about where I should do, where I should, you're still going in the direction that you know ultimately you don't want to be going. Now, the, <laughs> there's a problem with habits. And a psychologist, Dr. William Clem, put it this way. He said, why is it so hard to change behavior, or attitudes, or personality? I'll tell you why. These things are habits and habits are well-learned and they persist from mindlessness. Isn't that the case? I've always been this way. My parents have always been this way. My daddy's always been this way. My uncle's always been this way. Our family's always been this way. This is just the way I am. Any other questions? Okay. What's for lunch? Uh, just normal autopilot of life, and it persists from mindlessness. And it's hard to change your habit. I get it. I get it. But here's the thing that a 15-year-old tells us. <laughs> that if you don't have some convictions about being resolved to fight the right battles, you're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to say, man, I, I'm going to regret the mediocrity that I stepped into. And today you will say, I never want to make a mediocre choice. But I'm telling you, and you know it's true, that unless you resolve to change something, unless you resolve to adjust the behavior, unless you resolve to land on the, the biblical versus personal issues, unless you resolve to pick the right battles, it's difficult, I get that, I know that. Unless you resolve that. When those pressure moments come and you've got to be a 15-year-old standing in the, the palace of a king who's ready to kill anybody who kind of breathes the wrong way, why in the world would you step up? Why in the world would I step up? Unless I have the resolve to do this. Now, let me put it this way. Um, 
There are many things to fight about, but there's only a few things worth fighting for. We know that, don't we? There's a lot of things that we can fight about. There's only a few things worth fighting for. And here's what Daniel's example is right away. As we are stuck kind of in the indecision of what is worth fighting about or what is worth fighting for, this is where Daniel was. He had a lot of things that he could have chosen to fight about. For him, he was able to make that distinction between the personal offense and the biblical issues that he saw. And it's difficult, I get that, I understand that. But he saw it and he made it. And it's a tough, tough thing to stay squared away on fighting for what's right biblically. And when you do that, resolving to win that, and hear me right when I say win it, I mean resolving to give everything you have for that cause. Not in domination of other people, but resolving that in your character, in the quietness of your own heart and mind, that you will be resolved to the biblical principles that guide us in our lives. That is a battle worth fighting and worth winning, even if you or me might lose my life in that process. And Daniel's story is that in Daniel chapter 1. As we try to figure out what are all the things worth fighting for, and the fear that will come to say, hey, step back from that, step back from that, step back from that. There's some things wisdom says, yep, you don't need to fight that, you don't need to fight that. But there's other things. And you and I both know what they are. There's other things, even in your life right now, where if you wish you could change, you would. And I just want to encourage you this morning. If you wish you could change, do it. There's many things worth fighting about, but only a few things worth fighting for. And I want to encourage you, from the life of a guy who's 15 years old, he's a sophomore in high school, stepped up in the face of great physical danger and harm and said, this is, this is a hill I'm dying on. And if a 15-year-old can do it, come on. You know you can do that too. To make this real, let me challenge you with this. If you're sitting here thinking, man, there's some things in my marriage I wish were different. There's some things in my money decisions I wish were different. There's some things in my dating world I wish were different. There's some things in how, um, I, what I post on Instagram and Facebook that I wish were different. There's some things in my thought life that I wish were different. I, and I need to resolve to move differently in that regard. I need to resolve that. And let, me, let me just tell you this. That will not become real until you tell somebody about it or write it down. It just will not become real. It is going to be a good intention that will die. And so let me encourage you. Write it down. Talk to somebody today. Today. This is what I need to resolve to stand on biblically. There's so many things worth fighting about. There's only a few worth fighting for. And when we find those, let's resolve to win those in the sense that we are people of integrity who fight for what is right and true biblically. Tough challenge. Tough challenge. But great guidance given by a young 15-year-old kid in the throes of the Babylonian Empire. Next week, Daniel chapter 2. More challenge. More struggle. More fear and faith from the same young man. Hope to see you next week. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your grace in our lives, and we are grateful to you that you care for us and that you give us the scriptures to investigate, to study, uh, to wrestle with. Uh, and I pray that as we do so, that we would do so with, uh, with great freedom of mind and heart, with great openness in our own mind and heart to what it is that you have to say, how it is that you want to teach us through your word. 
I pray for us this morning to be men and women of courage, to be men and women who are looking at things in our own lives in which perhaps we've already failed in ways that habits or what have you that we think, boy, I've already tried and I'm not getting anywhere. I pray that you would give us the vision and hope again, the courage again to say, all right, I believe in a God. I believe in a God of second chances, of third chances, of 150th chances. And I believe in a God who is able to carry me and hold me when I resolve to follow him and when I resolve to live a life committed to what I know he wants from his word in the Bible. So, Father, I pray that you would give us that vision, give us that courage. We need you desperately to lead us. We need you to move in our hearts. We need your spirit to direct us, and we need uh, the strength that comes day by day as we seek to live out what we know we should do. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.